Hello everyone and welcome to the sixth and last teaching in this audio series that comes from the mindfulness course called Intimacy with Nature and Our Own Inner Wildness that was hosted by the Adventure Syndicate. In this session, we explore how we can cultivate a soulful relationship to life. Enjoy. This evening's theme is called Cultivating a Soulful Relationship to Life. So this is like the culmination of everything that we've learned so far. We've got, like learned, gone through the steps and uh, this is where we've come to. <laughs> the, the, the culmination is cultivating a soulful relationship to life. So in these six weeks that we have been exploring together, we started by investigating what mindfulness actually is. And that is because mindfulness is the tool that is the, the whole basis for all this, the foundation. We need mindfulness to be able to cultivate anything in our lives. We need mindfulness for that. And we need the mindfulness to intentionally rest our minds in the body and to let go of thoughts that take us to the past or to the or that project us into the future. And we need the mindfulness to let go of all judgment. Remember that? The judgment. We need to stop judging so much. And we need the mindfulness to watch our mind and to train ourselves to not wish or think that this moment should be any different. So we're talking about that deep acceptance, just this moment in presence. What I'm accepting is just this moment. So we use, this is what we learned in the first class, we use our intention, our attention, and our attitude to come into this presence. And then we moved on the second week to talk about how domesticated it is easy to become, becoming completely enthralled in societal, cultural, and conceptual demands and expectations. Whereas our whole nervous system, feelings and brain over millions of years has evolved to interact with and to be deeply embedded in, in the natural world. Where the natural uncontrived aliveness and life force is plentiful and vibrant. And that's not how we normally live. We live inside these boxes and we don't have as much contact, co connection with other living beings, neither animals nor plants as we would have during our whole human evolutionary history. And then we moved on to talk about uh, the third week to freedom and power and exploring how we, could, how we could use nature as a model and a teacher for us to learn and to then model back to, to nature and in our lives. Um, that we are free when we can truly rest in who we are as most of nature does, it rests in who it is. So we can observe nature, we can connect with nature and learn, embody what nature is doing, model, model and do the same thing. Tap into, like tune ourselves into what we see there. Uh, and, and this resting in just being who we are isn't actually so complicated as we often think <laughs> but we of course we need to I mean in, in meditation I'm sure you sometimes feel it that is quite simple meditation wants you sometimes when you just rest in just the simpleness of being it doesn't have to be so complicated 
And that that is where our true power lies, when we can just be simple, when we can just be who we are. That's when we're truly powerful. And we come into our wholeness. And as a natural extension of that beingness, we then, the fourth week, we dove into the age-old spiritual and philosophical question of who am I? And the key, the key exploration there, which is also a basis for what we're going to do in this class of cultivating soulfulness, the key exploration there was, can I see and rest in the fact that I am not such a fixed and defined and inherent me? as I normally think, that I am more of a flow of ever-changing experiences, more of a continual process than a rigid, self-contained being. And the implication of being more of a constant flow of experiences is this deep interconnectedness. I am not something in and of myself. I am interconnected. There is no Dorita that ends here where my skin ends. That's an illusion because I couldn't be here without the trees or the sun or the wind or the rain or without you guys, without the ants and the bees and everything. Uh, you take away something of that and I'm not here anymore. So, so that, that radical concept of me being a process, more of an inherent being, the implication of that is that interconnectedness, that interbeing, uh, interdependent. I, for me to be here, it's completely interdependent with everything else also being there. So everything is flowing and moving and co-emerging all the time, moment by moment. Um, and last week's class really tried to show us that the body is the key to all of this. So we can have the theories about many of these things, but to actually realize them and feel them and experience them, the body is the key to this, to connecting to the present moment, to connecting to the life force in us and around us, to connecting to our inherent power and freedom that comes from being deeply rooted here and now. That take, that's, that's the secret to that's in the body and not losing ourselves in worrying and mental constructs. Instead, we can tap into the body's wisdom and beingness. And if you think, well, I tried to do that, but I don't feel the beingness and I don't feel the wholeness and I don't feel the, all those things, the peace and so on, because we're, we don't know very well to tap into our body. It's not something that we, we forgot how to do that, but we can retrain that. And that's what we're trying to do here. And tonight, our last night together, until we meet in Spain <laughs> or in, on, the, on that island that you guys live on, um, we are going to explore how to cultivate a soulful relationship to life. And this has a lot to do with, as I said, uh, coming back to, well, of course, coming back to our very first class and just the basic mindfulness. But it also has a lot to do with cultivating and shaping our perception cultivating and shaping our perception. It's worth keeping in mind that both our bodies, our brains and our minds are completely plastic and open to new suggestions and experiences of being. It's not, nothing is set in stone here. 
So the Buddha, I don't know if I've already said this to you, but the Buddha once asked his disciple rhetorically, who is your worst enemy? And he himself replied, maybe I've already said this, but it's worth saying again. And he himself replied, so who's your, who's your worst enemy? Your mind untrained is your worst enemy. And then he asked rhetorically again, who is your best friend? Even who, who is your very best friend? And answered, an even better friend than even the most loving and supporting parents is your mind well trained. So our worst enemy, our mind untrained. Our best, our best friend ever, our mind well trained. <laughs> so instead of calling it train to train our mind, I say let's cultivate. Let's cultivate a soulful, um, a soulful way of perceiving and being. So we now have the tools to go on this adventure of play and discovery inside ourselves and outside ourselves. And here I want to make an important point that also ties into our mostly left brain separating and classifying tendencies, just to remind us that most of the things in this world and this life, they're not either or, but both and. So there is joy and there is pain. Both are meant to be. There's nothing wrong with pain. Both are actually perfect. And one cannot be without the other. We cannot have joy if we don't know what hardship is. Um, and how would we ever grow or learn anything if there was no resist, if there was zero resistance? You know, we come into the world pretty moldable and then we get shaped by all the good, but we especially get shaped by the resistance for better or for worse. So we see this in young adults. If they have been completely overprotected and all obstacles have always been removed by the parents or then these young adults become pretty helpless and useless at taking responsibility for themselves because they haven't grown those capabilities through normal resistance and adaptation to reality. So how does a muscle grow? It grows through resistance. How does endurance grow? After resistance is when the endurance grows. Same with the muscle. It's after the resistance that the endurance, that the muscle grows. Um, and there's light and there's darkness inside of us and in the world. And that is actually how it's meant to be. We're talking about deep, deep acceptance here. And one can't be without the other. Both are actually perfect and both are necessary. So our job is to learn to not just hold it all in a skillful way, but also engage with it all in a skillful way. Uh, you know, we want to engage in life. We don't just want to be able to hold it and sit there and hold life. We want to engage with life in a skillful way. And one of the keys to doing that is to not hold on so tightly. We don't have to, you know, that's a whole, the whole, what do you call it? The whole um, thing in Buddhism is the grasping is what makes us suffer. So we want to, and grasping also is when we push away. It's the same mechanism. 
resisting life. Um, so we don't have to hold on so tightly and we don't have to identify so strongly with this pain or the disappointment or the confusion. You know, we can observe it. We can make a, make a little bit of distance between us and those painful feelings. And we have seen in our meditations and we, we've just contemplate your own life a little bit. We know that everything is impermanent and always shifting and changing. And we have seen that through our experiences, that thoughts and feelings, they come and go, and that there is, in actual fact, nothing there to hold on to. There's just growing. There's just growing and learning and evolving in this dance and play of life. And what I'm talking about here is attitude. Remember, intention, attention, and attitude. Can we have more of that kind of attitude instead of holding on so tightly? Oh, I'm suffering so much, but I'm so confused. This is never going to end. Okay, right now it's like this. This too belongs, but this too will shift. You know, just shifting our attitudes to what's happening in life can shift a lot. Um, so it is our holding on and our pushing away that creates the greatest suffering for us because it's, it's just not aligned with how reality really exists. Because there is nothing to hold on to. And there is nothing to push away. So that's why we suffer when we do that, because it's not aligned with how things exist in life. Because everything in life just flows all the time. But we try to hold on to it. We try to reify it and fix it and make it solid. Even the bad things. That's our mental habits, bad mental habits. Uh, a Tibetan uh, Lama was once asked, so uh, what is it actually that gets reborn? And he answered, hmm, mostly our bad habits. <laughs> you know, we hold on so tightly to, to those mental patterns that we have. Um, so many people misunderstand this ancient teaching about letting go. And they think that such a measure of radical acceptance that we're talking about, accepting also the, 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 the suffering of life, means indifference. Now, if I'm, I'm just going to accept everything, they think that that means indifference and that nothing matters. It doesn't mean that at all. On the contrary, it means that we get to get, we, that we get to engage deeply in this shaping of life the shaping of ourselves and the shaping of the world. So this radical impermanence and constant flow where anything is, where nothing is fixed, solid or defined, this also means that we and life is highly shapeable. You know, that's the good news. Everything is very shapeable. So this constant flow and flux makes everything malleable and, li and, and, and life co-emerges with us, with our perception and our attention and our attitude. So reality co-emerges depending on how we engage with it. This is why I'm talking about this um, soulful way of uh, cultivating a soulful uh, engagement with life. 
Um, so talk about freedom and talk about power. We have that freedom and that power to choose and to cultivate a way of perceiving and engaging with life, of how life is going to co-emerge with us. So the Buddha also said that our minds should be as vast, as vast. I always have problems with the V in your language. The Buddha said that our minds should be as vast and spacious as the sky, but our attention to our actions should be as fine as barley flour. What does this mean? It points to a mind so spacious that things don't get stuck there. We don't hold on and identify with every feeling, thought and action. It's a mind with the nature of the sky where the clouds come and they go. But even when there's a cloud, we know that behind the cloud there is clear sky and the sky is still and clear and vast. And soon enough, the cloud just melts away. It will melt away. That's the nature of our mind. Behind all our chaos, the mind is clear and things come into our mind and then we can hold on to them there or we can let the cloud go or just realize, okay, there's a cloud, but behind I know that my mind is actually clear. So that's what the first part means. But at the same time, our attention to how we conduct ourselves every moment is deeply meaningful and important, which plays nicely into another Tibetan saying <laughs> that if you take good care of the minutes in your life, the hours and the months and the years will take care of themselves. This is radical presence. If you take good care of the minutes, the hours, the weeks, the months, the year will take care of themselves. So, so take care of the minutes in your life and worry less about the whole situation that you're finding yourself in or your whole life. What's going to become of me and my life? which of course doesn't mean that you don't have larger aspirations. You do want to know the direction in which you're going. But then you let go of constantly wondering and, and like, how am I doing now? And how am I doing now? And now? And how am I doing now? Am I okay? Am I okay? That's how we often are, like so navel-gazing, you know? And how am I now? And how am I now? You know, we, it's exhausting. Um... That, that's, uh, that's, that's like holding on really tightly when we do that. We get enmeshed in the grasping and in resisting. And when we do that, grasp and resist, we miss the flow completely, which is where the joy, but also the opportunities are actually to be found. When you are caught in your navel gazing, how am I feeling now? And now? And how am I now? This kind of attitude normally leads to dissatisfaction, to thinking that things should be different and that you are so far removed from the natural flow of life that you don't even notice all the opportunities that emerge out of the flow. Opportunities where you could be joyful, where you could be grateful, where you could feel a surge of energy, where you could get passionate about something, where you could grow. 
you will miss all those opportunities that are always there in the constant flow when we, when we do the grasping. Because when we do the grasping, we're like the donkeys with these things on. I don't know what they're called. So we don't see the beauty because we're holding on to that contraction and that stuckness. So cultivating a soulful relationship to life has a lot to do with cultivating our perception. We can perceive every moment of our life in a million different ways. And we do. You know, we are just uh, this group here. We all perceive every single thing a little bit differently and sometimes very differently. Uh, some are conditioned to see everything as a threat and as dangerous. And so they perceive most of life with this need to be on guard and on the defense. And some people, they don't engage at all. They're unwilling to really go into anything because they prefer to stay numbed and distanced because, some of, because of some hurt. Everything is because, because of a reason. It's not our fault. We've inherited these patterns. They're not our fault, but it's good to know our, our patterns. And there are another million different ways of perceiving and engaging with the world. And we inherited most of our perceptual makeup. We are, for example, here in where we live, where you live and where I live, we are not capable of perceiving 50 different shades of white as the Inuit of the past were. You know, because they were surrounded by snow and all kinds of different kinds of ice. And they needed to know, to know the safety and to read the landscape. They, they, they can distinguish between 50 shades of white. We can maybe between five. That's perception. So perception is not just what it is. So we train our perception with a single foundational view underpinning it all that there is no independent reality out there. There is truth. There is some kind of truth out there. I don't know what it is, but there is some kind of truth. Everything is interacting and everything is interdependent and everything is moving and doing whatever it does. Uh, so there is truth, but it is never independent and inherent in and of itself. This is that no self teaching again, which is really a very deep teaching that, you know, you could take a, a whole year or a whole life studying just that. But it has to do with that things aren't independent in and of themselves. They're always in relation with everything else. And that's like mind boggling because it's so big. Um, but but the, the, the thing in, in that is that we are participants in the co-emergence of every moment of reality and what is going to be true moment to moment. We participate in that. We participate in perception and in the co-emergence of reality moment by moment. It's, it's a bit like, just think about the, the butterfly effect in quantum physics, when they talk about that a butterfly can bat a wing, a wing in India and cause a hurricane in the Caribbean a week later or two weeks later. That's what I'm talking about. That things don't exist independently and inherently in themselves. They're always interdependent. 
And this is where we come full circle and come back to mindfulness, come back to being fully present in life, moment to moment, without judgment, without resisting what is, because it already is. Why would we resist it? It is. So does this mean that I shouldn't judge nor resist all the forces that keep polluting and plundering and harming our planet, for example, or keep perpetuating social injustices? Remember that not judging and not resisting what is doesn't mean not caring. It means that we don't hold on so tightly. Because if you hold on too tightly to your blame, to your anger, and to your resistance, there will be a lot of contracting against life, against what is. And in that kind of inner terrain, the caring has very difficult conditions because you're contracted and resisting and angry and full of blame. The caring can't flourish. And if our caring can't flourish, then we are not going to engage in our most wise and compassionate and beneficial actions and behaviors on behalf of the planet or on behalf of those who suffer uh, social injustices. And also, we will become absolutely exhausted and burn out because blame and anger and all those things are exhausting. Caring is not exhausting. And Gary Snyder, he, he, he is dead now. He's a poet. He was a poet and an eco-activist. Uh, since the 60s, he was like an activist on behalf of our, our planet. Uh, and he died some years ago. But he was asked shortly before he died, not so long ago, what he thought about the state of affairs, about the impending climate crisis, loss of biodiversity and so on. And you know what he answered? He said, if you are going to save it, save it because you love it, not because you must. So that's a paradigm shift in perception and in soulfulness. So judgment, blaming and resisting what is, will, it will eat up that creative aliveness, which is our birthright and our true power and freedom. And we can use the image of a natural, like a natural spring, is that what you call it, where spring water comes out of the mountain? We can use that image um, as, as our life force and aliveness is like a spring flowing out of the ground. But if we obstruct that spring with too many stiff and fixed and hard calcifications, the spring cannot flow as bountifully and free. So we, we, we can restrict our own aliveness and creative life force when we contract and calcify against life as it is. Which, of course, doesn't mean that we think that whatever happens is just fine. That's not what, what, what this is about. We're saying what is right now in this moment. 
It's not going to stay like this. It changes all the time. Um, so it's not that, that, we ex that we think that it's just fine, whatever happens. But now that it is actually happening, we do choose a more skillful way of dealing with it than resistance, blame, and judgment. We use our mindfulness skills and we drop out of contraction and resistance and into presence, being with what is, using our intention, our attention, and our attitudes. There are a million ways that we can be with what is, you know, and presence is probably a very skillful way of being with what is. Presence is without blame, without judgment, but with a lot of caring. So feelings of resentment, blame, and of anger, and of sorrow because of injustices or perceived suffering, they're not wrong in any way. Um, what is potentially harmful to us and others is what we do or don't do with those strong messengers, those feelings that visit us. Do we hold on strongly to them or push strongly against them? Or do we accept them, them without too much pushing and pulling? And, and then work skillfully with them. That's the whole point. The, the point is not to not have them. The point is, what do we do with them when they come? Because of course they come. They have to come. I mean, we have to feel some anger about the whole situation. And we have to feel some, some, some strong injustice, you know. We have to feel those feelings. But what do we do with them then? What do we use that energy for? There's a lot of energy in those feelings. And if you look at the Buddhist, the Tibetan um, images, I don't know if you've seen them. Some of them are really wrathful, like, like this, because we need those energies. And those are our emotions. But the whole point is, what do we do with them? Do we stand, stay stuck in them or do we work skillfully with them? Um, so this too is actually also a matter of perception that emotions are okay and welcome and they are workable. I don't need to be a victim being tossed about with every, with, without any agency on the waves of my emotions. So the question becomes, how conscious are you about how you look at things? This is the whole point of this <laughs> talk, this phrase. How conscious are you about how you are looking at things. I'm talking about perception. How conscious are you about your own perception? Even at concepts like time, you know, for example, healing normally takes time, both healing our physical body, but also healing an emotional wound or a difficult life situation. It's kind of a healing takes time. So how, how do you look at time? How do you look at patience? What's your perception of these concepts? Um, and for example, adopting new ways of being, that takes time. Can we, for example, look at time in a more benevolent way? and not as such a scarce and pressured resource. That's how we normally look at it. 
For example, I have been meditating and practicing mindfulness now for a month and I haven't changed. I'm still just as neurotic as always. Can we look at time as a friend working for and with us? That's a matter of perception, a matter of attitude, a matter of how we perceive things. And how about this journey, whether you call it a spiritual journey or a personal growth journey, how do you look at it? In the typical capitalistic view, how am I doing now? Am I any better than yesterday? And I, am I better now than, than last week? Always comparing. That's our, our left brain again. Always comparing and very result-oriented. Maybe there is no result, no end result in this work. And it probably isn't linear either. Maybe it's just a more open, curious, and more wondrous way of being. So the inquiry here is about perception itself, about intentionally shaping our own perception. And the question to hold is, how conscious am I about how I look at things? At how I am? How conscious am I, for example, about how I look at my past? How conscious am I about how I look at my future? How conscious am I about how I look at my emotions? About how I look at perception itself? Is it shapeable or is it just what it is? Two very different ways of looking at it. How conscious are you about it? Um, and how do I perceive sacredness? How do I look at gratefulness? Do I, for example, do I see sacredness? Do I even have that concept in my mind? Or am I too modern for that? How do I look at gratefulness? Is that only when somebody gives me something, then I'm grateful? Or do I connect with gratefulness every day? How do, how do I perceive life? Do I, do I perceive and see something sacred and something to be grateful for every day, every five minutes? How do I perceive letting go? How do I look at this concept of letting go? How conscious am I about how I look at it? What kind of attitude do I have to that? or to resistance, or to everything. This is being conscious about how you look at things. It's very radical, actually. And so in this, there is a deconstructing movement in this, but there's also a reconstructing movement going on, reconstructing more artfully and skillfully and helpfully. So we're first deconstructing our perception and then we reconstruct it in a more artful and skillful way, something more helpful for us. So we are, as I said, tapping into the no self here, that there is no fixed solid self, that it is a stream, an ongoing process happening moment to moment. And this is what allows us to liberately, to, to, to freely 
to free our creativity and our flexibility. And we are most certainly talking about playfulness. And this is what I'm talking about here, about shaping our perception. We can shape and perceive everything because everything is just a flow, interdependent flow. So we need to call upon our creativity. We need to call upon our flexibility. And we most certainly need to call on our playfulness, our imagination, our nourish, our, our capacity for nourishing ourselves and others. We need to call upon our poetic self, our artistic self, even if we're bad artists in the eyes of others. <laughs> and we need to call upon this part of us that wants to participate in this co-emergence of reality. So what we are really talking about is the power and the freedom in the spaces in between. The relationship between the things, not the things themselves. Like Viktor Frankl talked about, that the freedom and the power is in the space between the stimuli and the reaction. So this whole thing is all about the spaces in between. What can we do with that? So this active participative creativity, this soulful or artful way of shaping our own reality is part of our human sovereignty. And it behooves us to become ever more conscious and develop our perception, develop our meaning-making agency. Yeah, we have some power here. We need to use that power especially now in the times we live in. And as I said, it actually involves both imagination and creativity. And maybe I'm sure many of you know about Charles Eisenstein, the eco-philosopher or whatever we want to call him. You know, when he says, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. You know, if we, if we want to bring about the more beautiful world our heart knows is possible. I'm not just talking about the planetary world, but our world, my world, my life. The more beautiful life that our heart knows is possible, then we have to engage with this power that we have. So remember, this is not insignificant stuff that is kind of nice to listen to. You know, any way of looking at anything has consequences. We actually all have to live the price of how our perception is shaped and engaged with. It has a price, you know? It, it, you know, any way of looking at anything has consequences. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, this uh, Nigerian philosopher called Bayo Akomolafe, he says, we have to slow down because times are urgent. <laughs> um, so can we open up for there to be less suffering and for more sacredness and more beauty? You know, we are free to decide what is important and how we consequently want to train our perception instead of just stick with the one that we have inherited, the one that has been shaped largely by forces that we didn't have any say in. 
So remember, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. We see the things that confirm our assumptions and our preferred ways of looking at the world. So self-awareness is a requirement to be able to see differently. And we can encourage ourselves to use our soulful imagination in order to expand our self-awareness and to see in a different way. And of course, this all begins with embodied awareness, to ground ourselves, to reconnect to the moment to moment with yourself, pausing, listening. And this is where, this is how we break that habitual response that we have. You reconnect to the present moment and you let wonder and curiosity arise. This is the way to creativeness to create a new response, new reactions. And what are we listening to? We're listening to the soul here. And this is what, when I was talking about the call to adventure, right? Our soul speaks a different language. It's not left-brained, our soul. It expresses itself in art, in ritual, in connecting to the sacredness of life and the miracle of life. That's the territory of the soul. And that is what we are moving towards, a soulful way of perceiving and, again, and engaging with life. And I have read this poem by Rilke in a meditation, but I'll read it again, the whole poem. If we surrendered to Earth's intelligence, we could rise up rooted like trees. Instead, we entangle ourselves in knots of our own making and struggle, lonely and confused. So, like children, we begin again to fall, patiently to trust our heaviness. Even a bird has to do that before he can fly. I truly hope you enjoyed this last session of the teachings. In truth, I actually hope that more than enjoyment, you heard something that resonated with the innate wisdom that is already awake inside of you. And that this perhaps has served as a reminder to be present to the unfolding of life moment by moment. And again, if you are interested in these kind of themes, then check out my podcast, Intimacy with the World, where I speak with soulful people from different walks of life about what it really means to live a meaningful life. And lastly, if you feel that you are not showing up in your life the way you know that you can to your full potential and stepping into your full power, then you are welcome to schedule a free 25-minute one-on-one with me to see if I would be a good fit to accompany you on the journey into more wholeness and courage. You can go to my website www.doritaholm.com and schedule a session there. Thank you so much for listening and I hope we get to connect again in the future. Be well.